Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war here too, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. How that does that. Welcome back into the Snap Hook, Scott Barzilla, Tim Costello, getting ready for draft day. It's the NFL draft. It's the morning of the draft as this comes out and Scott there's nothing like draft day every team has that little glimmer of hope just thinking maybe could this be the year that we get our guy could this be the piece that puts us over the top could this be the guy who brings us back to the top for the Texans could we find our quarterback so much going on and you know we're like 12 hours away from getting a lot of these questions answered round one tonight Scott yeah, unless you're the Texans. I don't know if you saw that uh, little tweet that they released earlier this week. I did see that. Losing is just okay. <laughs> Failure is not an option. It's a necessity. Uh, okay, yeah, you're telling us you're going to screw this up. Thanks. And I get what they were saying. Like I, I got the tone of it. It was just so poorly portrayed. But I, I think we're in for... I think we're in for a doozy of a first round, Scott. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of late smoke screens being put up. Uh, you've got the Carolina coming out and saying they've made up their mind. They know who they're going with. They're not telling anybody, but we've seen Vegas odds go crazy on Will Levis here lately. It's I, I, we're shaping up for. I, I hope a very exciting Thursday night. So here's my dilemma. Uh, so my dilemma is that. A, I know this is going to be an app. I mean, I, I, I just, I have no faith that this is going to be anything more than a shit show for the Texans because, I mean, it's just the way things have been going the last couple of weeks. But for SB Nation, they are paying me $100 to basically live, uh, to cover the draft live. So I'm going to be updating the, the, uh, the draft picks in the first round Thursday night, pick by pick. I got to be somewhat sober for that, you know, because I don't think that, you know, SB Nation is going to like if I go, oh, the fourth pick, the Colts like, I don't think they're going to like that. But 
we have the Bartesian at home that makes mixed drinks perfectly. And, you know, I feel like downing something, you know, especially if I see Will Levis being picked, you know, I'm going to need a shot of something. So can I say sober, but drink enough to where it takes a little bit of the edge off? That is the question. The answer is absolutely. The answer is yes, you can and probably should. Um, as as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, one of my favorite episodes of uh, one of the golf podcasts I listen to is they did scientific evidence on is there a sweet spot? Is there a spot on the golf course where you play better than when you do sober? And the answer is yes, it's 2.6 drinks. But the ability to maintain at 2.6 drinks is what kills most golfers. So the question to you, Scott, is can you maintain that level without superseding it? Well, I am diabetic, so I don't know that that 2.6 is going to work for me. I think 2.6 might be a little bit over where I should go. But, you know, that's also, you know, depending on how much do you space these things out, you know, do you drink water in between? You know, there's so much a part of this, you know, that, that chemical balance, as you're, you're talking about it, is such a huge issue. But uh, you talked about on the golf course. Tonight, we are mainly talking golf because, hey, we're the snap hook. If you look at our picture and you look it up on, uh, on Spotify or if you look it up on your Apple podcast, you see a picture of a golf course. So we both thought it was kind of high time that we talk some golf. So before we get into some funny golf stories, which I think we both enjoy, I did have one serious topic. I think I sent a tweet to you uh, from a Holly Saunders, who is she is kind of in the peripheral of women's golf. I don't, you know, she's not a, a, a women's golf professional per se, but you know, she's kind of the peripheral. And I think everybody is. Probably heard of Paige, uh, Paige Spiernak from the, at this point in time, who was on the women's tour, and now is not. So, kind of raised my question: um, How do you feel, as a avid golf fan, about women's golf selling sex appeal in order to get eyeballs on their tour? I think it's just the latest iteration of the same issue, right? People had. People had an issue when Jan Stevenson posed for Playboy, um, and that was years ago. But you know what no one had an issue with was when Gary Player is naked on the cover of ESPN Magazine in 2016. No one had an issue with that as as the body issue. They don't have a problem with that. You know, it's if, if someone wants to pose, they can pose at the end of the day. I, I have no issue with it. In fact, there's, you know, there's 24 golfers who have posed nude. Before, you know, these are professional golfers. Sophia San- Sanadolo was on uh, the Ladies European Tour. She was also in the big break. Uh, she posed nude at, at certain points in her life. Um, you know, Camilio Vajegas appeared naked in the body image. Um, there's plenty of golfers. Greg Norman, Brooks Kepper. All these guys have no problem when they do it. So I don't understand the problem when women do it. Because at the end of the day... Brooks kept posing naked in the body issue that that boosts the men's sport, right? It draws eyes to Brooks Kepka, whether you're a dude or a girl, you're like, wow, look at this guy. He's ripped. Yeah, this is one that I never thought a golfer would be, you know, in this shape, whatever you want to say. It's a positive for the men's game. 
So it's not fair to then, you know, go after the women because at the end of the day, who cares, right? It's YouTube content. They are trying to attract a niche and it's, they're trying to attract young golf fans. who like hot girls. Okay, cool. They're trying to get paid. They're trying to make money. Sex sells. Go for it. That's how I feel at the end of the day. So are you uh, followers or fans of their particular work? You know, those two that I mentioned, or are they uh, garnering any of your attention at all? I know who Paige Spunak is just because she's good. Like, that's that's what gets lost in all this, sadly, is, like, how good at golf that she is. But, like, she her videos get recommended to me because of the amount of golf content I watch in general on YouTube. Like, every now and then those videos get put in my feed and I, you know, if I see it, I watch it and then I move on to the next video as I scroll through. Like, it's not something that I subscribe to, but it's not something that offends me. Like beautiful women do a lot of different things, right? Like there's beautiful women, softball players, there's beautiful women, scientists, there's beautiful women in the NBA. There's beautiful women on the LPGA tour. There's beautiful women in movies and magazines. And quite frankly, people have paid to see a lot of different beautiful women naked in magazines. And now all of a sudden it matters because they're with a golf club. I, I, I don't get it. So, yeah, the best, particularly in my childhood, the best women golfer. And I, and I don't know if, she, if she's the best of all time. I, you know, I haven't really followed the game closely enough. But There's, there's sadly, they, like, I, I don't mean to be rude. There is one answer for the greatest women's golfer um, of all time. And it's Nancy, Annika Swordstam. Uh Nancy Lopez from my youth. She was good, but... Annika. Annika, yeah, Annika's really good. Um, and what's funny is is that, and, and, and this, you know, it's kind of one of those things that pissed me off because uh, listening to him kind of pisses me off. But uh, Jim Rome had a nickname for Ray Knight, who was married to Nancy Lopez and decided to caddy for her. He called, called him Ray Lopez. Uh, and, and I, like, I am, I'm weird about Rome. I know he's a total douchebag, but there's a sentimental thing to Rome because that's what me and my dad listened to together. We, my dad loved Jim Rome and I, and I've listened to so much Rome. You wouldn't imagine, you couldn't imagine how much Jim Rome in my life I've listened to how many smack offs I've looked forward to every year. Uh, he's a douchebag. He's not a nice guy, but he, he, he does entertaining radio. Well, what killed me about him is that every once in a while he would come up with something that would make me just laugh my ass off. Like when he referred to NASCAR as NetCar, I, I just, I mean, I busted a gut every time. And then all of a sudden he's booking NASCAR drivers on his show and it's like, come on, dude. You know, what are you doing? Because I remember him, and this is before your time, but he was on ESPN in the early, early days and he had Jim Everett. Uh, oh, absolutely. Right. He kept calling him Chris Everett. Yep. got smacked in the yep. face. That's, that's the reason he went national. Jim yeah. Rome was a local California guy before that. Well, I loved his stories about, you know, when he started doing traffic and he was doing traffic in Santa Barbara and he would talk it like his, his station director would sit there and tell him, I need more traffic stories. It's like, this is Santa Barbara. We don't have, you know, and so he just, he said he just got to the point where he was just there to say, it's in the clearing stages. Is this, there always be an accident yeah. clearing stages? It's, He's the video of, of him getting smacked is fantastic where he's sitting there. He's interviewing Jim Everett. He keeps calling him Chris. 
Everett looks him right in the face. He goes, I bet you won't call me Chris Everett one more time. Jim Rome, just right. I think I will, Chris. And then just right across the table with the right hook. Jim Everett had enough of that shit. Well, yeah. So anyways, so, uh, you know, Jim Rome refers to Ray Knight as Ray Lopez. Yeah, because he wanted to, you know, after his retirement from baseball, former Astro, former Met, uh, part of some very good trades for the Astros, I should, uh, I might add. Uh, but, you know, he wanted to, to caddy for his wife, Nancy Lopez. Nancy Lopez, great golfer, probably not somebody that people would want to see in the body issue. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to shame anything. I don't think anybody want to see me in the body issue either. So, you know, hey, what, it is what it is. But I think... You know, what I think is kind of frustrating is that, you know, with the sex appeal is kind of what you were talking about with Paige Fairnet. These women are great golfers. They could kick your and mine's ass on the golf course any day of the week. And I think, you know, not enough people realize that. And so I just hope that this doesn't get lost, you know, when we're watching, you know, someone like that, like a Holly Saunders or a Paige Fairnet. Uh, or anybody else, you know, like Jan Stevenson, you mentioned there's that famous photo of her just lying naked in a bathtub of golf balls. Um, you know, it's an iconic picture, but these, you know, these women. Paige, Paige took the same picture too. Yeah, she did. But they, they could kick our ever-loving ass on a golf course. Uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I think they could kick your ass. I know they could kick my ass. I, anyone on the LPJ tour beat me like a drum. I, I'm, I could maybe outdrive them, but the moment that's done, like it's over. These these women have unbelievable touch. They hit six irons closer than I hit wedges, and they putt better than I do. Like people talk shit on the LPJ tour because the driving distance is the same as the men. But like again, most people who play golf can't drive it like those guys either. And most people who play golf can't drive it like the women on the LPGA tour. Like, I think I can outdrive most of those women, but that's the only thing I got. That's it. After that, they're beating me and they're beating me bad. And that's okay. Cause they're professional athletes. That's like when I was a kid, um, we, we had a timeshare in Florida every year. And one of the nice things about timeshares is you see the same people every single year. And so one of the other families was uh, a girl who was like two years older than me, varsity basketball player, went on to play college basketball. And while she's in college on Arkansas Tech, we played a game of one-on-one and, and I lost. I'm a high school golfer, not on the basketball team. She's a D1 athlete. I felt like I had no shame in that L. I took it with pride, whatever. It was a close game. I lost. Couldn't really play the physical level of defense I normally like to play. You know, it's a different game. I come back in, my dad's like, what the hell, man? How do you how do you lose that game? You got to get physical. And out of his mouth comes, I think I could beat Cheryl Swoops if I had to. And I was like, even at like 10 or 12, however old I was, I'm like, let's let's tee it up right there. Because there is no way in hell you're beating Cheryl freaking Swoops. Three-time WNBA champion Cheryl Swoops would beat your ass. I don't care that you're a guy. I don't care that you think you could play physical defense or whatever you think you would do, she would break both your ankles so quickly you wouldn't even know what hit you because she's a pro. 
She trained for this. If you want to have a cooking competition, that's all you, Dad. But the moment that you step onto Cheryl Swoops' court, you got no shot. My, my sister is four years older than I am. Um, and I am fairly certain, even today, I could beat her in a foot race. I could probably out-jump her. But she played varsity basketball. I kept the junior high bench from flying up in the air. That was my job. There's no way I could beat her one-on-one. I mean, when we were young, probably now. There's no way it's happened. So that's, you know, it's just one of those things, right? But uh, something's happened this weekend. Uh, I know at the political show you gave us a... Real quick, too, just before we move on completely, Scott. I, I, I think this kind of... But this issue in general goes into conservative outrage over women's sports. I, I think that's what it is. Like, when did when did people care enough to make a big deal over women's sports? But in the last five years, it's trans people are taking away opportunity from women to play. It's are we using sexuality to to sell things? It's 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 fake outrage from something people really don't actually pay attention to. Because if you if you paid attention to to women's golf, you know what kind of game these people have. And if you paid attention to any of the women's sports that use some subtle hints of sexuality, you wouldn't realize that they're the only ones. Because you know what? Baseball pants are skin tight. We send NFL players out to the combine in, in skin tight underwear. Uh, basketball players are sleeveless. You know, it's not exactly like every other sport. These guys are fully clothed in baggy clothing and you can't, if you're a woman who wants to look at the men's physique, you can't do it. I still remember when Sue Bird, she had a bet with, uh, I think it was a radio uh, DJ out of Seattle because she played for Seattle. And I think, you know, the bet that she had is that if she did not have a two to one assist to turnover ratio, she would let him spank her. And everybody was up in arms over that. And, and she's, you know, probably, uh, Maybe you could argue the best WNBA player ever, you know, in terms of a career. I mean, she played for 20 plus years. I mean, uh, I mean, there's, I, I think some comments have some, some words to say about it, but that's a Homer pick. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Cheryl Swoops didn't play nearly that long. Uh, I'm thinking more Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia yeah, Cooper's good player. Uh, Kim Peratt's a really good player. Yeah, she was she was a missing piece that came in and brought it together. I actually really cared about the WNBA for a bit. I really watched a lot of Comets basketball, and uh, we actually, I think, my sister went to college with Kim Pratt, and so you know, actually drove her home one time, you know, from from school. So that was kind of a cool deal uh, to sit there and say, "Hey, you know, we knew this person win," you know, that kind of deal. But and I, I've watched more than my fair share of volleyball because my, my sister grew up playing it. She went to college. She ended up coaching varsity, you know, still up until this last year was still a varsity volleyball coach. So I've watched women's sports probably more than most people. And, you know, some of the athletic stuff that these, these women, these you know, girls could do is pretty spectacular. Um, I went to an LPJ tournament two years ago. I don't know if you've ever been to an LPJ event, but the level of golf, unbelievable. The tournament setup, dog shit. Could not believe that this was a professional tournament. 
even just from the way that girls were announced on the first tee, Scott, I, I had more pomp and circumstance at high-level junior tournaments than these girls are getting at the Volunteers of America Classic. They're playing a course that's burned out. Fairways are dead. Greens are dead. You would never see this on the PGA Tour. The girls don't get a fair treatment. They really don't. The LPGA Tour is loaded with talent. But if you look at the number 100 player on the LPGA Tour money list versus the number 100 player on the PGA Tour money list, the number 100 player on the PGA Tour money list is a millionaire. The number 100 player on the LPGA Tour list is living at home with mom and dad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that goes into a huge, you know, obviously uh, the women's So then soccer. how can you not use sex, though? Like, if, if you're but, trying to pump money into the into the league, into the system, you draw eyeballs by whatever means necessary. If there's a, that big of a disparity in sponsorships, what do you do? Yeah, I don't know. And, and, and the, ones that, the, the ones that really faced this was the women's soccer team. Because, you know, they're sitting there winning World Cup after World Cup after World Cup. They can't get near the money that men are getting. You know, I love the the World Cup this year, but the commercials talking about how the Americans are going to win. I'm like, who the hell are they kidding? You know, that's just on the American uh, broadcast. Of course, they're going to put that hot there. I can guarantee you, in England, that commercial wasn't playing. Yeah, but you know, but you know, but even in America, we're sitting like, oh, come on. Yeah, there's no. I mean. We got out of you know we got out of pool play and I was like yeah we got out of pool play. I mean these the women are dominating this thing and they had to sit there and sue in order to get more money. It was just and that's crazy too, right? Because you would I feel like at least if if we're selling jerseys and all that stuff for Team USA soccer, that's because of the women. The men have done jack shit to to make people want to wear that jersey. I feel like. The women make you wear it with pride, but the men, they barely, as you said, they barely advance out of pool play and you're shocked when they do it. Uh, they, they don't compete at a national level. When, when the women show up, they are the favorites. And it's, it's, it's like the Tom Brady led Patriots. Here we go. Team USA, come and get it. Now I, I, I get there's a disparity in the amount that certain countries can spend on, on women's sports versus what they spend on men's sports across the world. But at the end of the day, the women aren't even close the better soccer team if you look at results. So before we get to you know some of the fun part, I think what it might take, and, and Annika Sorostov did this, uh, and I, I think a lot of people forget this. She played at a couple of men's events. And uh, played well. Yeah, and I think that's what it's going to take. Is I, It's going to take you know somebody out there, and I, I don't know who the best – uh, women's golfer in the world is right now. Uh, I, I plead ignorance there. It's the uh, Corda. It's it's the Corda sisters are both absolutely fantastic. Nelly Nelly Corda uh, is probably the better one though. But you could, I guarantee it. And Monica played Colonial in two thousand three. In certain events, like I think a U.S. Open with the way that they do the rough and the way that you know the course is probably going to be tighter and shorter that's the thing it's not shorter 20 years ago uh, i'd say yes they've lengthened these things out to a point where you got to hit it 350 off the tee to compete on the pga tour if we went back to 1990 with today's technology distances i'd love to see a, a, a lady get out there because michelle we did it as well well um, well what you know they've been talking about doing the uh you know with the golf ball 
that might be, you know, that might be a women's in once they, you know, they get the golf ball scaled back. You know, that might be, you know, a woman's opportunity to, you know, to get into one of these events and make some noise. Because, you know, I think there are certain golf courses out there where, you know, I think that uh, the women's game, they probably have better touch than a lot of the uh, mid-golfers. Certainly, they're going to be better around the greens. So if you get to a golf course where maybe you don't have to bomb it, you know, maybe, you know, they might have a shot at it. I think the best shot they would have had is a course like St. Andrews last year. Like if you could have had, if Annika went through, uh, you know, the open championship qualifying and qualified to play the open championship, I think St. Andrews last year would have been the course just because of how firm and fast everything was running that if you do hit it straight 240, 250, it's going to run out. So I think that would have been a great one for her. It's just the courses are too long, unfortunately. They they really they really have changed that. But I do think you're right with what Annika did was huge. I mean, but even then, Scott, you look back and and this is a quote from Vijay Singh, who maybe looking back, like I couldn't remember why I hated Vijay growing up. And and most of it, it was because like he was a rival of Tiger. But it was stuff like this that made me dislike Vijay. What is she going to prove by playing? She doesn't belong out here. It's ridiculous. What is she not going to prove by playing? You know what? Annika showed up that weekend and she beat several men. No, she didn't make the cut, but there are plenty. You know, four, 48 people don't make the cut. So she beat some of those people. So are you embarrassed that your friend got beat by Annika? Is that what it is? Or at the end of the day, did she prove that talent plays? Talent plays across the board. And if she had your distance, she would beat your ass. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think we're on the same page here. So I'm going to shift this thing. I know Tim in the uh, political show, he gave us some news on his weekly tournament. So you want to give us the, the, sport, the sports side of things? Give us an update on that? Yeah, give it a, you know, we'll keep hitting it if you want to keep passing it over here. Um but no, I I, uh, I had my first single week win last week on on the uh, Spark Golf League's Thursday night league. I shot a one under net, three under gross. Fought the elements, a little bit of hail, a little bit of rain, a little bit of wind. Um, you know, just just hit a lot of greens, made enough putts. Would have liked to make more. You know, I feel like I come in here saying it every week I could have gone lower, um, but I, I feel like that's just what playing good steady golf is Scott, when you hit a lot of greens, you're going to have a lot of birdie putts and you're going to always feel like, Oh, I could have made more putts, but that just means I'm playing good steady golf. And I'm, I'm happy to be happy to still be maintaining first place overall. And I'm happy to have uh, accomplished one of my goals, which was, which was to go out and win one of these weeks. So golf is a family friends event. And so the one the event I'm going to this weekend, we call, we call it affectionately, we call it the Golfathon. So to basically set this story up, when I was about 14 years old, uh, my grandmother went to my father because my father is the oldest of, of you know the children in the family and said, I want you to do something to keep the family together. You know, do what event? And so that turned into the Golfathon. So the very first Golfathon, had seven people that went, and they stayed at my parents' condo uh, in Trinity, Texas, a golf course called Westwood Shores. And then I went the next year to make it eight. I was 15 years old. 
And what I love is my uncles are like, we don't want to take my, my you know, our nephew's money. And I went out there and I ever love and kick their ass. <laughs> because they, you know, they could hit the ball a long way. They had no idea where the hell it was going. I had my burner plus at that point. So I'm just, you know, 250 down the middle. Boom, boom, boom. It would time out. Um, that was when I was 15. So now we are into year 35, I guess. Uh, and it's expanded to, you know, to 32 people. Tim has an open invitation. Couldn't go this year, but uh, he has an open invitation. He could go again. And so basically the whole thing is this was, this is organized around just a guy's weekend. We play, we used to play four rounds. We're now got it down to three. Uh, and then we play poker at night. And uh, when they're, I didn't, I didn't know you were a live guy. Yeah, we couldn't cut four rounds. Went down to three. You went down to three. Well, some of our patrons are a little bit older, so, uh, so anyway, most of my funny golf stories come from this event, and so when I talk about a golfathon, uh, that's the one, you know. And so basically, the way the tournament goes is we play Friday, we play everybody plays their own, and we just do like a, a whoever gets the low net, boom, you get some money. On Saturday, we're playing what we call, and I call it a ramble. Some people call it a shamble. Basically, where it's, you know, everybody hits their drive. You take the best drive, and then everybody plays in their own ball from there. And then on Sunday, play the scramble. And the scramble's always, you know, the big deal, right? So this one year, we're playing out, we're playing the scramble round. Tim's played a many scrambles, I'm sure. And we're playing out at April Sound. I don't know if you've ever played out there at April Sound. My dad slices one over a house. And, you know, we kind of listen. You kind of hear a faint bam. And so we're just kind of like pretending nothing happened, keeping on going down there. About 20 minutes later, this guy comes out on the course. He's, David, somebody hit my BMW. Who are they? Who is this? Who is the motherfucker that hit this BMW? He looks at our card. We're playing a scramble. So we only have one score across the top. He's like, man, you guys are making pars and birdies. It couldn't be you. You guys are too good. And so he just lets us go. <laughs> and so yeah, there, yeah, there it goes, right? Uh, but yeah, funny stuff happens like that every year. Uh, funny stuff like that happens in a poker game every year where we play, the game we play is a, play, a game called Three Card Gut. And I don't know if you've ever played a three card gut even know what that even is uh but yeah it's a game where you could lose lots of money pretty quickly uh and basically the the object of three card gut is there are no flushes no straights so it's all high card pairs threes of a kind still remember the time my uncle had three tens loses to somebody had three aces and he was just he just ripped everybody i mean he was pissed off but anyway that that's my initial funny golf story, but this is that's what I'm going to this weekend. So hopefully I can bring back some money. I can make the snapbook family proud. When you were on the Clear Lake golf team, did you practice at a Clear Lake golf course daily? Okay. Sadly for our listeners, it's it's no longer there. But when I uh, was learning the the beautiful game of golf, I learned at a Clear Lake golf course, and my freshman year. 
as well as seventh and eighth grade on the middle school golf team was at Clear Lake Golf Course. And now that apparently I found out today that course is legitimately turned into a retention pond. Uh, it used to be a retention center, and you could still see the outlines of the hole if you looked hard enough. But now they they dug that up. But um, where I lived, I could hop on hole number 14, and I could play 14, 15, 16, 12, 13. And I could play that loop. And I was a member of the course, and so it wasn't like I was skipping out on dues. I just would get home from school and play that five-hole loop. Well, one day, my, my dad's out there walking it with me, and um, they had all those houses all along the left. And he's sitting on 13, and he hits a big old hook. Hits one of those houses. And we're walking the course. So he he didn't even he didn't even try and go over there. Doesn't even give it a let's go see if my ball's in. Cause these people are outside doing yard work. So it was very obvious who hit that golf shot. Well, the lady flags him down, waves him over, and basically tells him, I don't know if you know this or not, but the hole's actually over that way. And you hit this really far left. So maybe you should work on your alignment. <laughs> it was just like I'm like, did you just get shamed by like a 75-year-old woman on your alignment? Like, oh my God. But uh it's just, you know, there's so many of those fun memories. I I I know my dad hated playing South Shore Harbor simply because of the amount of stucco houses that were out there. And I know at least two or three golf balls I got embedded in some stucco walls out on South Shore Harbor that came off the face of my dad's driver. No, we, uh, my, I think I told this story before, but we get new listeners, so I'm going to tell it again. Uh, my sister was the head volleyball coach at Clear Lake High School uh, for a good time. Um, she might have been the coach while you were there. I can't, um, I, you know, don't remember. The volleyball team was pretty popular, and I was on the golf team. So let's, let's just say I, I didn't know any volleyball players. So, you know, she may have been the coach while you were there. In fact, I'm fairly certain she wasn't for at least part of it, right? I graduated in 08, so I was there from 04 to 08. Maybe at the beginning. Maybe at the beginning, right? So here's here's the funny thing. Uh, She held a tournament. uh, The Booster Club held a tournament at Bay Oaks Country Club. So my dad comes up with this great idea of setting me up on a team with my three uncles. So... Right now, I, I, I suck pretty bad. Uh, I jacked up my shoulder probably about 10 years ago, and it's probably zapped 10 to 15 miles per hour off my swing speed, which has turned me from like a 270 hitter into a 200-yard hitter. That's with the driver. Uh, but back then, you know, this is, you know, in the early 2000s, I, I was a pretty damn good golfer. I was, you know, probably carrying it between an 8 and a 10. So I'm bringing in my eight, my 10, and my uncles are like 30, 34, 36 handicap. So basically, our team came in next to last. It was only a group that was had one of the Harlem Globetrotters on it. They won the free golf lesson. So I lost out on a free golf lesson because we were too good. It just pissed me off. Anyway, we get to... Okay, I've got to count them up here. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Little par four, par three. Almost like a dog leg. Almost. Yeah, like a little wedge. It's a little 120 yard shot, a little left. 
Gotcha. So Bay Oaks has these stone tea markers. They're made out of stone. So my uncle, we got a group behind us, you know, waiting on us. So we've got an audience. He hits one about three inches, a screamer, three inches off the ground. Which I don't even know how he does this with a wedge, but, you know, it is what it is, right? Hits the stone marker. Bam! Flies up in the air behind the hole. This is a plate glass window by an inch. Hits off the side of the house, hits off right by the pool, bounces back on the tee box. And I'm sitting there thinking, owner of this house, if they had had a broken window, sitting there probably thinking, I bought this house behind the hole. Who in the hell is breaking this window behind the golf hole? But, you know, that's, that's where we were at, right? And so basically... I can't remember if I hit the green or not. If I didn't hit the green, we weren't putting because that—that's what that day, whole day was like. See, I—I I kind of had the opposite experience of it because we would have a similar tournament for the golf team every year because we needed new shirts and all the other stuff. The booster club would raise money for the golf team. We would have a tournament with entry fees silent auction yada 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 my mom was always in charge of running it we'd raise like ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year uh for new bags new rain gear all that kind of stuff well one year uh the number one player on our team his name was sean madera and he had one district the year before as a sophomore he shot uh i guess par, uh, par is 144 on two days he shot 140 so he shot four under wins district as a sophomore he's coming back in his junior year it's a pretty big deal um, now his dad decides his son needs to win the, the school's fundraising scramble. So what does big daddy Mark Madera do is he goes and hires three Hooters tours players to be the playing partners for his son in the fundraising scramble for the golf team, because it would be a bad look if his son, the number one golfer didn't win the tournament. And this is a guy who, I mean, Mike, Mark Madera was just a, a one of a kind, wore bike shorts everywhere he went, um, and not just a coach. You know, one time we, we beat his son's team in Little League, and he Mark Madera literally spit at me in the handshake line because he was so mad that I had the walk-off base hit. This is just the kind of guy that he was. But, I mean, could you imagine hiring out three, you know, low tour level pro golfers for the day to come play at your son's fundraiser high school tournament. Cause he had to win it. Un- unbelievable. All right. So clear Lake golf course, uh, course story, right? On the team. Me and this guy named Jason Manley, who I swear I haven't seen in 40 years. Um, well, no, not 40. Uh, we'll say at least 30 years. You know, because my 30th high school reunion is this, this summer. We are taking on these two guys. The only one I can remember his name was Scotty Ezel, because he also named Scott. From South Houston High School, they thought they were the shit. So we were going to go two-man scramble. Now, this is back in the days. So technically, we started on the back nine. We only played a nine-hole scramble. Um so technically, you know, it was it was starting at ten, but you know, back in those days, it was the front nine. I eagle the tenth hole by myself. 
you know, driver three wood, roll in like a 40 footer. And we're playing skins. We beat them like an ever freaking drum. And I can't remember what we were playing for per hole. What I do remember is that they owed us 30 bucks. And they never paid. So, Scotty Ezel, if you're listening to this podcast, $30, and that's $1991, my friend. Was $30 in 1991 worth now? I'd have to Google it, but I'm guessing probably down here close to 100 bucks. Scotty Ezel, where's my 100 bucks? Come on. I got an eagle on, on you know by myself on 10. Got to give it up. So $100 in 1991 would be worth $221.61 today, Scott. Um, an increase of $121.61 over so, those 32 years. So 30 would be close to 100 probably now. Uh, maybe times 80, it by maybe 81. 2.1 times it by 2.1. So, so we're like, closer to 70 bucks. Yeah. So I need my $70. Essentially. Plus interest, though. With interest. Penalty for late fee. Collection fee. Um, I mean, we can get it there if you need to. I, I know some people who know people who know a few guys who could help you collect. Funniest story is that my daughter is the reason at KinderCare that Kids are not allowed to sell anything because she drew a picture and she sold it to her friend for a dollar. And then her friend did not pay up. So my daughter decided to repossess the picture and a fight ensued. And I don't know what this fight you know consisted of, but you know, we'll just sit there and say. And I just told her, I said, honey, you're Italian. It's time that you learn this. You are not your own enforcer. What you do is you go to the toughest kids you can find. You should say, I'll give you 50 cents if you go and collect that dollar. And that's what you do. You got to get yourself an enforcer. That's how these things work. You're Italian. You got to learn these things. A Rocky Balboa of sorts. Uh, yeah, if you watch the uh, for particularly Rocky One, you know where that's yeah, where he was, was going first. around collect Rocky yeah. Two. He did a little collecting. Yeah, he he yeah he kind of fell in some hard times there. So had the, to do the some- best line the best line in that first movie though, or after Rocky gets some money and that mobster tells him uh, he can get him in on some condominiums, and, and Stallone looks right at it. He goes, "I've never used." <laughs> It's so it's a little throwaway, but it's just like Rocky has no idea that he did not say condom. Okay, so uh, gosh, funny uh, funny golf stories there. So I think we're we're kind of run along, uh, kind of run into uh, a couple of other things you mentioned in the opening. The Rockets have themselves a coach, and not just a coach guy, a Scott, the guy that you and I. Um, both kind of agreed, and I think a lot of Houston have agreed, this is the guy. This is the guy that we need. This is the guy that we want. And it's pretty encouraging that when you look at both the, the head coaching hires for the Texans and the Rockets, 
fans pretty much all kind of in a consensus said like, hey, this is the best hire. Basketball people said this is the best hire. Football people. And the Rockets and Texans went and got the guy both times. I think the best thing about it from the Rockets standpoint is he had choices. You know, he would have – and if he would have waited it out, I am sure there's going to be a couple of playoff teams who lose in the first round who are going to be letting their coach go. And so there are other situations that he could have gone to that probably would have been better. You know, to me, I'm almost you know, surprising. You know, I thought when the Raptors fired Nurse, I thought he was going to go to Toronto. Uh, is where I thought he was going to wind up. Uh, but apparently, you know, Raphael Stone did some selling and sold him on the young talent here. And, you know, if you look at it, we talked about the fact of, uh, you know, maybe James Harden comes. You know, if James Harden comes, you know, maybe they could sit there and, and swing a deal with the Celtics. I know Jalen Brown's not happy in Boston. You know, maybe they swing a deal and, and bring in Jalen Brown. You know, I don't know if you could imagine maybe shipping out a KPJ and Kenya Martin Jr. and you replace them with James Harden and Jalen Brown. You know, now we're cooking. Yeah, it's going to take some some draft compensation as too with with Jalen Brown. It's not going to be just player for player, but um, obviously hard to free agent Brown, and you can still go get a third free agent in there too. So, um, man, exciting times coming for the Rockets, and especially once we get the lottery pick ball bouncing where they may. You know, fingers crossed for for Victor, um, but. I just I haven't been this optimistic about the Rockets since since the day Harden was traded. Uh, really, since the day Steven Silas was signed, because when we signed Silas, we still had Harden, we still had Westbrook, and we had signed this young offensive guru who was going to come in and get the most out of our guys. And then it was like right after we signed Silas, things everything just blew up. And so there just there hasn't been a reason to have optimism since Steven Silas was hired. Because once you started coaching, you saw he wasn't a good coach. So that optimism went away. Uh, we saw the talent we had on the roster wasn't good enough to win. Um, yeah, man, it's it's just good to, to have something to look forward to with the Rockets again. I just hope he's enough of a force of nature. Um, and one of the things is that you uh, – Kelvin Sampson, uh, Lance Erline has said this multiple times on his program. Kelvin Sampson talked about the fact that chemistry is often built – through uh, confrontation. Sometimes confrontation is necessary. And I don't know if Steven Silas was afraid of that. I don't know if he was not allowed to do it. I don't know what the situation is. But I, I just, I don't know Steven Silas, but that just didn't seem like his personality. Some people are just non-confrontational, right? Like, and also too, Kelvin's older and wiser. Kelvin's done it before. Kelvin's been to the NBA. Now he's in college and he's dealing with college players too. Those confrontations are a little bit different when you're a college coach versus Steven Silas, who, you know, how much older is he than James Harden? How much older yeah. is he than those guys? Well, the Doki, I mean, he, he absolutely, and, and it, he was able to get in some people's faces in Boston. He was able to change the way because that team, basically was the same team that had been average, you know, for years under Brad Stevens. And so he's able to go to those guys. He's able to go to Tatum. He's able to go to, to Brown. He's able to go to Marcus Smart. He's able to go to those guys and say, listen, you know, this is the kind of basketball we have to play. And they played it. 
and almost good enough to go you know, win the NBA Finals against a you know vastly superior Golden State Warriors team. And so, you know, they may make it back to the finals this year. I don't know if they do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you have a guy that's immediately in one season of coaching, got to the NBA Finals. I mean, that's, you know, that's about as good as you're going to find. I mean, there's some guys that have some rigs out there. But I don't know that there was a better guy on the open market, and you got him. And, you know, that's... You know, when you start talking about sixty million dollars of cap money, now all of a sudden you're you if you're a veteran and you're thinking, you know, where am I gonna go? Houston has to be an option. And I think that is the most exciting part of this whole deal. I agree. There's just so much hope and optimism. It's just and we just haven't had that. And there's there's so much to look forward to. We got the guy. We got the guy who chose to be here. It's it's like when Dana Holgerson came to UH. For the first time, it felt like we had the big coach who wanted to be here versus someone we were giving that first time shot to. You know, Ime Odoku is a fantastic basketball coach. He's gotten results, and he wanted to coach the Houston Rockets. And at the end of the day, it as a fan, it doesn't get better than that. It doesn't. Okay, so before we get to our sports scumbags of the week, uh, we do have, if you're listening to this, we hope that you've downloaded it before the draft, but maybe you downloaded it after the draft. But just keep in mind, we're recording this before the draft. Do you have any predictions that you want to make for what you think your Houston Texans are going to be doing? I think it's Bryce Younger bust, first and foremost. Uh, I think if he's there at two, somehow magically, they go quarterback. If not, they're taking Will Anderson. Um, I think the Texans will be active moving up in rounds two and three. I That will be my prediction. I, I think that they've got a lot of bullets to shoot, and they don't have to shoot them all necessarily individually. I think they could package some stuff and, and move up and go get a guy who slipped a little bit into round two. Um, you know, they've got the second overall pick of round two. I, I think you could see them maybe package some of the third round options and fourth round options and move back into the second round and get a second pick in there. So I think that's going to be my prediction for the draft is going to be Bryce Young or bust at quarterback. And I think you're going to see a lot of upward movement in the middle rounds for your Houston Texans. So here's the funny news of the day. And, and being in Houston and listening to Houston radio, sports radio, like I do, I get to be privy to this, and I don't know if that makes me blessed or cursed. So here I want you to follow this one, right? So a Reddit user, and I don't even, can't even remember his name, his screen name. He says that Will Levis has gotten in contact with him and told him personally that the Carolina Panthers are taking him number one overall. This sounds like the Beltron's nephew thing all over again. The niece, the aunt, or whatever. Yeah, Beltron's yeah, yeah. niece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but here's the funny thing. So the odds, and, and I, I don't bet on these things, but Levis was, before today, plus 4,000 to be the number one overall pick. After these rumors come out, he's only plus 400. 
And Bryce Young goes to, I think, from like, it was like minus 4,000 to minus 700, if you can believe it was. So, but here is the conspiracy theory that is hilarious because they, what they said is they, somebody postulated the Reddit user is actually Cal McNair. And what he's doing is he's making the rumor that Will Levis is going to be taken number one overall because he knows Will Levis is not going to be taken number one overall. And the Texans really want Will Levis. And so they know the fans normally would riot if it were Will Levis. But if the fans think that the Carolina Panthers were going to take him, then they'll be just so happy that Will Levis is there for them at number two. So are you ready to... Have some mayonnaise in your coffee. Are you ready to eat the banana with the peel still on? I don't think that Cal McNair could set up a Reddit account if you asked him to. I I don't think he could. He did do a question and answer with uh, Houston fans on Reddit. Under the Texans one, right? If If you believe that. He was actually the one type of right, But I think the PR person for the Texans has a Houston Texans Reddit account and said, okay, Kyle, you sit here and you type into this box and answer the questions. Oh, he, 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 sign up. he has an intern that can do that for him. I mean, come on, you know, but it, I okay. think this is such a savvy plan. That's Hannah McNair. That's a Hannah move. She's really the brains of that operation. We've been talking about powerful, successful women on this show and how they don't get their due. She's the real owner of the Texans in my book, Scott. So here's where I think is going to happen in the first round. I think, and I don't know when this is going to happen, but I think Will Levis is going to be your quarterback in the future. Um, And I think a lot of this negative C.J. Stroud stuff is really just smoke because I think majority of Houston fans, if you were to ask them, would want C.J. Stroud over Will Levis. But... When you hear all this negative stuff, and I was like, oh, well. But see, the thing is, is that the more I hear about Will Levis, the more I don't like him. Because when he went to the Manning camp, he's got Eli Manning, he's got Peyton Manning, he's got Archie Manning right there. They can ask, he, he can ask him any question he wants to. And what question does he ask Peyton Manning is, how do you handle your marketing? Like, come on, dude. Get in the league. Have a little bit of success. Shit. Have a little bit of success at the college level. Then we'll talk about marketing. But I think what happens is, is that if Will Levis, I think the Texans will use that draft capital you're talking about. I think they're trading back in the uh, later part of the first round. Because they want that fifth-year option on somebody. And so if they don't wind up with their quarterback, I bet they trade back in the first round to get Hidden Hooker is what I'm thinking. Uh, if they don't, get I it. saw a mock with that. I saw a mock with them taking him at twelve, uh, and I and, and I don't mind that so much. I think and and there's a guy that used to write for Battle Royale blog who you know we interact with Battle Royale blog every now and then. Uh, Rivers McCown. I don't know if you heard heard of him. He writes. Yeah, he used to go on. He used to go on six ten or or seven ninety one of the two. I feel like back in the day. And so you know he he. Uh, we kind of comment with him behind the scenes every now and then. But he has his own site. And he said this, and he talked about the fact of how many things that you could first guess that the Texans have done wrong over the last several seasons. 
And he said, you know, he said one thing, and, and this is, and it, it's shuddering to think about it. He says that the Texans could have been run better by a fan poll over the last five years than the way they've been run. And that's just, I mean, it's staggering when you think about it because it's true. Yeah, especially after Bob McNair died, right? From the time from Bob McNair died till now, especially pretty poorly run. Even at the end for Bob McNair, I mean, it started to me with, with trading away Dwayne Brown from that moment on. It seems like every decision they made up until, I mean, the the, the jury's still on D'Amico, but I mean, I think they got that one right. So let's go from the moment we, tw- we traded Dwayne Brown to the moment that we hired D'Amico in between there, every single decision that you made was, was wrong. Like Bill O'Brien traded a lot of you know, third or second or fourth round picks for former first rounders who didn't pan out with their first team, hoping to catch lightning in the bottle like they did with, with, with Conley. Uh, that didn't really work out. They did the same thing with Hargraves. Didn't work out there. So they burned a lot of mid-round capital. They they wasted head coach hires on two guys. They uh, hired a, a GM just to fire him, just to promote Bill O'Brien. I mean, yeah. Uh, could you imagine if they're like, if you had a fan question of like, would you trade DeAndre Hopkins for this package? <laughs> no one would have said yes. One of my favorite, I mean, it, uh, this is the joke they used to tell about Rick Smith. Um, and, and, and I say this saying like, if somebody could offer me Rick Smith back, I'd be like, maybe, but no, no but, why is that the uh, ba- like? Why can't we just have a good GM? Well, no, well, no, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. But, but why is that the but, option? Well, no, but but the funny thing what they said about Rick Smith is they 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 did a fake billboard where they sat there and said, "You know, draft day is fiction because nobody could get more than one player out of a draft." And he's like, "You know what? He's got a point there." Because I mean, Rick Smith. I remember one year they went through like his picks, and it was like Rick Smith was money in the first, absolutely money in the first round. Sure, garbage around two, three, four, five, six, average in round seven, and pretty good in the undrafted free agent market. So you get like one good first rounder, possibly. If he didn't hit the first round, maybe he hit in the second, like a Connor Barwin or Brooks Reed or something like that. But those are the same years we took, like, uh, Amobi Okoye in the first round and Kevin stuff like Johnson. that. Yeah, you know, so you get one of those two. Never hit in the third, fourth, fifth. We hard, I mean, we got a couple of good offensive linemen out of that. But, like, for the most part, the Texans were terrible in that area. And then you got your Arian Fosters. You've got your uh, A.J. Boyes of the world. We're just, like, he's finding these stars who don't even get touched. But he can't touch rounds two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, it's pretty. It, it was pretty bad. Um, and and I don't want Rick Smith back. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's funny that you know as bad as things got, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome. You're like, man, I long for the days that we actually had a mediocre GM. You know, I yeah. I, I so think- the day the day they made the move to go get Deshaun Watson in the draft, I was. I was working at the original Carabas in, in Houston at the time. And Rick Smith came in that night after he had moved up, drafted Deshaun Watson. And I, I'll never forget it. I got to, I walked up to him. I said, thank you for finally pulling the trigger on a quarterback. And I shook his hand and I walked away. And it was, 
it was a pretty damn cool. I mean, it sucks what happened with Watson down the line and it turned into a deviant, but it was pretty cool to be able to walk up to your team's GM and be like, hey, man, you freaking nailed it tonight. Well, you know what's funny is that, you know, history was repeating itself because that was his last draft as GM. Uh, he pretty much was pushed out. Well, yeah, uh, they really took advantage of his uh, wife's illness. That yeah. was terrible. That was that was O'Brien. They pushed him out. You know, the best draft in, in Texas history, the one that produced, you know, um, not only Mario Williams, but, you know, produced uh, Owen Daniels, produced D'Amico Ryans, produced, you know, all those guys, Eric Winston. That was Charlie Cash. Uh, Mike, Bris- Mike Brizzle, Brizzle the, uh, yeah. the right guard yeah. as well. That was Charlie Casserly's last draft. So, mm-hmm. you know, you had rumors that uh, Nick Casario is going to leave and go back to New England. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, GM seem to be, you know, kicking the ass whenever it's their last draft in Houston. So, uh, but here, the last prediction, I don't think it's going to be Will Anderson. I think if they take a defensive uh, lineman, I think it'll be Tyree Wilson. And what I'm hoping is I'm hoping that they trade down if that's going to be the case, because I think two is a little bit is too high to take Tyree Wilson. But, you know, what would be nice is if they were able to trade down, it might make it easier. You know, they might get a little bit more ammo uh, maybe to trade up from 12, you know, to get that quarterback. Um, If it is Will Levis, then so be it. But um, I think – yeah, I've prepared myself to be disappointed. Um, I think they'll end up taking a quarterback eventually because I, I don't think you could go into the season with this group. Um, I think the problem that you have right now is that if you go in without drafting a quarterback, you're essentially become the 2022 Carolina Panthers. Carolina Panthers, you know, won some football games. They had, you know, especially when they fired. Uh, when they went to uh, Steve Wilkes, they were competitive. But they won seven games. They're picked in the middle of the draft. And there they are. It's, I mean, quarterback drives the machine. Quarterback is the conductor. He's the guy who makes your team go. So obviously, you and I have said it from day one, it can't be, cannot see another snap of Davis Mills. They've got to do something. I, I am not sold on Will Levis. I am with you. I don't understand the love for Will Levis as opposed to a guy that I've, I've been on since day one of this podcast is, is Clayton Toon. And and to me, they, they grade out pretty similarly. I'm not a an NFL scout, but I mean, you're looking at a guy, Clayton Toon, who's 6'3", 220. Will Levis, 6'3", 222. Okay. Both are mobile. Both have big arms. One of which I think was a lot more accurate in college, and, and that's Clayton Toon. So if I'm looking at it the way you are, right, where they're like, oh, they really want to go after Levis, they see all this potential in them, yada, yada, yada. Why not trade back up late in the second round and go get, get Clayton Toon? It, to me, he can do everything that Will Levis can do, and, and then some, because he is a better passer and he's a more protective with the football so i that's the one that drives me crazy is how do we how do we grade this one guy here and the other guy there when i think they're very very similar players and if they're that similar why not wait and go get clayton tune in the second round you can go get some weapons in the first and the and the uh, first pick of that second round go get tank dell who's a great wide receiver who played with clayton tune in college they already have a connection put together some weapons but 
it's not if we go Will Levis and I'm wrong, you'll I'll be the first one on this podcast to come on and eat crow. But it seems to me like you know because Josh Allen has done so well, we're trying to reverse engineer Josh Allen. We're trying to say, hey, this guy does the same thing Josh Allen does. Let's go get him. And every every franchise quarterback does it their way. You you don't find a franchise guy by trying to find the next Tom Brady, the next Peyton Manning, the next Drew Brees. Those guys don't exist because there's only one of them. They're Hall of Fame quarterbacks. You got one run at them. So every guy who's the guy does it his way. And, and you can't go out and say, look, this guy has the same size, the same arm strength, the same mobility as Josh Allen. Yep, let's go. Because that's because that's how Jake Locker became a first-round pick in the NFL. That's how Blaine Gabbert became a first-round pick in the NFL. Because you're just trying to to fit a square peg into a round hole. So, point on Clayton, too. I don't think you have to uh, get him in the second round. I think he's going to fall further than that. Um, I think so. You'd probably get him in the third. I mean, and so, I think the problem that you have, and, and this is where, you know, I think Rivers made a point in his article, and I, and I thought about it, and it's like, yeah. The thing is, is that, the number of times you're going to absolutely fall in love with a quarterback before he's on your team, still, the, the Eagles, they just paid, you know, Jalen Hurts, you know, $11 billion, it seems like, you know, or over $50 million a year, if you believe, you know, all that, you know, obviously NFL money is funny money at a certain point. They drafted him in the second round. They obviously didn't love him that much. It made him a second-round pick. They fell in love with him later. They just drafted him out of the whole idea of like, hey, you know, Carlson Wentz is kind of squirrely. Let's just get a guy just to have a guy. And all of a sudden, boom, he turns out to be great. A lot of your franchise quarterbacks that you find are you know guys that the team did not love to begin with. But something happened. It clicked. These things happen. So I think the Texans have to take a quarterback. I don't particularly care who it is at this point because I'm not a scout. But you got to put somebody else in that room. If it's Clayton Toon, it's Clayton Toon. Hey, you know, sign me up. Uh, I'm going to throw some numbers at you real quick. Just just tell me who do you think is who? Who do you think is the first-round pick? And who do you think is the guy that they're being looked at as a third and fourth-round pick? Again, we've gone over size, right? Both guys are basically the same exact size. One player was a 67.3% completion. He threw for 4,074 yards, 8.2 yards per attempt. He went 40 touchdowns and 10 picks. And he had 158.9 passer rating. Player number two, 65.4% completion rating, 2,400 yards, 8.3 yards per attempt, 19 touchdowns to 10 picks, 151.9 passer rating. Here's what's funny about your numbers, because uh, I heard you know the, the uh, 97.5 ESPN radio in Houston, and they were going over the numbers, because here's the assumption, here's the answer that I bet you're going to get. The answer, because I know you're, your first guy is Clayton too. Uh, but the, what they're going to sit there and say, yeah, but Will Levis played in the, in the SEC. Okay. They did a study of C.J. Stroud and Will Levis. Their opponents, every one of their opponents, 
between, you know, 2021-2022. And just the average number of points per game ranking in the NCAA. C.J. Stroud's opponents averaged a ranking of 50 around. So, top 50, you know, defenses. Will Levis, 70. So, here's this SEC guy. But see, this is what they're not telling you. What they're not telling you is that he plays in the SEC East, which is by far the weaker of the two divisions. So, he's playing against Vanderbilt. He's playing against... You know, the 2021, a sucky Tennessee team. You know, he's playing against South Carolina. He's playing against Florida, who's kind of shaky. So, yeah, you know, he's in the SEC, sure. But the competition he's playing is not that great. The only team he's playing on a yearly basis that's good is Georgia. That's the only team he's playing every year that's good. So when you mention Clayton Toon's numbers, that's what people are going to sit there and say. They're going to sit there and say, well, yeah, but he plays in this conference and he plays in that conference. But but, but my overall point is just if we're so sold on Will Levis as a team, right, because the fans are not, why not just go get this guy who does exactly what he does, if not better, that's being undervalued later in the draft? You know, that's we've been over this in our draft talk. It's just that's the one to me. If if Will Levis is rising, then you should sell that smoke and, and find a way to go get Clayton Toon. Oh. It is what it is, but that's that's where I'm at on it. All right. So you mentioned eating crow. Uh, we're going to get to our favorite, you know, uh, part of the show here, but I'm going to sh- uh, shoot off a little shot here of my primary, who's my primary sports scumbag of the week? It's going to be me. I'm my primary score, uh, scumbag of the week. And here's why. What have we spent doing on this show? When we talk Astros, I have been bad-mouthing Jake Myers. I've been bad-mouthing Mauricio Dubon. You can, you can look up the receipts. I've sat there and said, why is Mauricio Dubon playing? I've sat there and said, why is Jake Myers on the roster? Why is he playing? And here we are. So just to give you all a little behind the scenes, uh, we haven't quite gotten to the end of the Tampa Bay Rays series as we record this. But as we're recording this, they have at least, they, they have a 4 one road trip going between the Braves and the Rays. Those are pretty t- two pretty damn good baseball teams. And that's after taking two of three of the series before as well. And for the Blue Jays, who are another pretty damn good baseball team, and we took two or three for the the, the Pittsburgh Bucks, who at least to this point are playing better ball. Pretty damn, they were sixteen and seven at one point. Pretty damn good baseball team, right? And Mauricio Dubon has a nineteen game hitting streak going. He's hitting over three hundred. So I am the scumbag, at least the primary scumbag. I'll have another one we get into the regular segment, but I am the primary scumbag of the week because, you know, whenever we are wrong, we need to, you know, be adult enough to stand up and say, Hey, I was wrong. And I commend you for that, Scott, because 
I think we both maybe had a especially on Jake Myers. I'll be the first one to admit I, I piled on on Jake Myers. I I think I I held off a little bit more on Dubon. Uh, I do think I was maybe hoping Hensley would play a little bit more, but this is what happens in baseball. Some your hand gets forced, right? And and Dubon is a guy who, from all accounts, has turned the corner mentally. And it's 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 interesting because we had our mental health episode the, uh, in our first episode this week. You know, there's a lot of conversation, and this is why I love baseball broadcasts, is because they're so regional and you can get that behind the scenes. Julia Morales uh, is one of the best, I think, sideline reporters on these regional broadcasts in the game. She gets the information. She does a great job of relating it out to the fans, and it makes you kind of understand what's going on. Dubon and Jordan have been playing checkers every day in the locker room before the game, talking about hitting. Jordan has taken... Mauricio Dubon under his ring un- and has changed his approach to hitting. And it's so fantastic that Julia can peel the curtain back for us. And because as fans, we're wondering what changed, right? What is, what did, what did Mauricio Dubon do that, that changed? And, and at the end of the day, it's, he went to the best guy on his team and he said, yo man, I need some help. And, and commend Jordan for, at such a young age, being able to do that too, being able to not only get yourself prepared because Jordan's off to a, a fantastic start, you know, minus his, his stiff neck he's dealing with, but he's he's professional enough to help another guy get prepared as well, and and that's something really really special. I think uh, we we would be remiss not to bring up Corey Jolks, who is just absolutely, absolutely his CCISD product. Corey Jolks. Clearbrook High School. You know, that's my daughter's school. So, you know, I got to be proud there. But I'd like to see him draw more walks. I don't think, he, I don't know if he's had any at this point in the season. Um, that'll come with, that'll come with time. It, I think it's, it's part of just, he's got one, he's got one walk so far this season, three doubles, two homers. I think, though, that he's, he's doing really well. Um, and I think, you know, Debon, Still doesn't have quite the power that you would want out of a you know MLB regular, but once Altuve comes back, which they've said he's ahead of schedule, Dubon you know probably is going to go back to the bench. And that's I, like- I don't know. I, I think at this point, Scott Dubon's my starting center fielder. If if things play the way they do, how do you take that guy's bat out of the lineup? You, you play him in center field until he goes cold, and then maybe you go back to one of the other guys, but. At this point, Dubon plays every day, and you do it like Marwin when he was hot, and you find a different place for him. Who get, who needs a day off today? Show of hands. Mauricio, third base. Mauricio, first base. I'd like to see him do that. I'd like to see him play about three or four days a week and maybe just play different spots because I think it's hard because, you know, Jake Myers, he's been hitting, and he's been hitting with a little bit. 286 this season. He's been hitting with a little bit more pop than what Dubon does. Uh, He's got one homer compared Chaz, to Dubon's zero. Chaz, you know, Chaz McCormick was playing well when he went down. Chaz is your most pop in, uh, in center field. And Chaz is obviously a guy who can walk a little bit more than those two guys. Um, and he's also been dangerous on the base pass, which is kind of, you know, what's sad to me is that, you know. Before he got hurt, Chaz at the leadoff spot was, yeah. was dangerous. But now with Dubon taking charge, we're about to be in dangerous at the leadoff spot again. Here is where I'd like to see this team go. Um, 
Okay, I want to be uh, I want to be as charitable as I possibly can because I don't want to step back into the scumbag status, you know, right after I'm you know working my way out. But they have got to sit Martin Maldonado more often. They have to, and really for two reasons. Number one, he is just such a liability at the plate. I mean, right now he's he's hitting under a buck fifty. Uh, as we as we stand right here, uh, yeah, he's got some patience. Yeah, he'll hit you an extra base hey, hit. Hang on, he's not under one fifty. He is hitting one fifty one. Scott, let's give the man his due. I thought he was at one forty seven, but maybe I, I, I might have had a knock tonight to, to bring him back up to one fifty one. Okay, but here's what my serious answer to that question. Martin Maldonado cannot be your regular catcher in 2024. He can't be. Uh, I would love for him to be a roving instructor. I would love for him to maybe be a minor league coach and work his way up through the ranks as a coach because I do believe he has you know, has it in him to be a future major league manager. What I don't believe is that there, he shouldn't be playing 120 games a year. That That's just, you can't. Because the whole thing is, is that even if you were good, you need to know what Yadier Diaz can do. You need to know what Lee can do at the major league level. And right now you don't. I, you know, the Salazar kid, I, I don't, you know, I would send him back down. You need, especially whenever you start getting Brantley back and you start getting Altuve back, You've got bench bats that you can't afford to send down. Like, are you going to send down Corey Jolks and keep Salazar up? No, that doesn't make any sense. So, you've got to start playing Yadier Diaz more, just to see what you have. Because you know, I'm sorry, as a hitter, I can't hit if I'm playing once a week. I'm not, you know, I'm not sharp. I mean, that's almost like pinch hitting. Uh, I mean, and back in the olden days, you used to have dedicated pitch hitters back when there were 10-man pitching staffs and you had a 24-man roster. And so you had, you know, 14 position players. And so you could have a pitch runner. You could have a pitch hitter. And you, like, your Lenny Harris types and, and those guys. I was, a, know, I was a Matt Stairs guy. He gave you three very aggressive swings a game, and that was it. And, and so... It, Matt Stairs would have been a DH if you know the National League had one back in those days, um, but you you had you had Greg Gross back in the seventies. You had pinch hitters. Uh, Manny Moto was you know one of those famous ones. You don't have pinch hitters anymore. So with your when you got a Yandier Diaz, you got to play them more than once a week because you you, know, you need to see what he got. You need to see is this a guy that could be a viable starting catcher. Or not. If he could be a viable starting catcher or if a Lee could be one, that's money you could spend somewhere else in free agency because those guys are going to be work for slave labor. But if they can't, you got to go get yourself a catcher next year. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you completely there, Scott. Got to figure out what to do with Maldi. You look at 2021, he hit a buck 72, 2022, buck 86, and this year he's at a buck 51. So clearly, um, it's. This is not a bad season. This is not an aberration. This is the trend that Maldonado has been on. He has not. He hit 215 in 2020 with the Astros, and that was his high mark for a full season 
since 2018 when he hit 225. I mean, the best season he ever had was 266 and just 256 plate appearances. So Maldonado has always been a defensive catcher. He, he limits the base dealing better than anybody in the game. And at a time when the bases are bigger and you can only pick pick off two times, you know, Dusty Dusty is going to be Dusty, right? He's going to go with his guy. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we've got to know what we have in Yiner. We've got to know if it's him or Corey Lee or if it's somebody that we have to go get outside of this organization. But um, th- this has to be the last year of, of, of Maldonado as your as your day one catcher. If if you want to bring back Maldi and he catches Fromber once a week, well, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm completely fine with with the Shane Reynolds Tony Eusebio type relationship that the Astros have had before. But he can't be a guy who's in there three days, three out of five starts. It can't. It cannot happen anymore. The only other thing that the one positive I would think that I, that I've seen happen and the one negative. So to try to you know balance these things out, right? Um, I think our starting rotation overall is starting to wind itself into shape. Uh, particularly, Garcia's had two very good outings here the last two times out. He uh, shuts out the Rays over six innings uh, after shutting out the Blue Jays over seven innings. So, I mean, we're in good shape here. The one guy I'm worried about, I'm not going to say he needs to be out of the rotation because, you know, April's way too early to be making these statements. I think we're worried about the same guy. Is Urquidy. Yeah. It's Urquidy. And, I, I, and again, I'm not saying we need to be kicked out of the rotation yet. But I think we need to keep a side eye on him. You know, also, kinda... something to remember with Arkiti, though, I feel like he's always been a little bit of a slow starter. He typically gets himself into the form in the, in the summertime, and then he peaks closer to the playoffs. This is a guy who has always been a big-time playoff performer. He's pitched well in the postseason his entire career. And so um, I, I don't think he's ever been exceptionally good early in the season. Arkiti, much like many of this Astros team, is a late bloomer. And so... I, I don't know how many of those guys you can have at because <laughs> every year the Astros dig themselves a little bit of a hole with these with these late starts. And so I'm with you though. If if, if when McCullers comes back, someone's going to get knocked out. I mean, it's not going to be Hunter Brown. Hunter Brown's pitched into a 303, 309 ERA, um, 23 and a third innings through four starts. Like he's giving you more than five innings to start. He's he's got a great ERA. He's striking guys out. Like every other piece of this rotation is is doing what you want it to do or, or Keedy's definitely a weak point and, and worst case scenario, they go to a six man rotation when colors comes back, but you know, or Keedy's that weak man out and, and looking back on it now that the Keedy for Contreras projected trade that the Astros vetoed last year. How bad does that look? You know, with, with Maldi hitting one fifty one, or Keedy getting lit up. Well, you have to remember that Contreras was going to be a free agent. And True, but like you got to think you would have had an inside track at re-signing him too, though. Yeah, uh, the, the development I do like, since I was going to say something positive, is I like Baker going to Abreu as a, a ninth-inning option because I think he has absolutely filthy stuff. Now, a couple of those outings have been yeah, a little shaky. But he he is he is nasty, uh, and and I don't know. Presley just might be having a big of a hangover for the World Baseball Classic. That just might be. I think Presley's just pitched a lot. You know, yeah. you had a world, you had a 
uh, an ALCS in 2020 on a weird year. Then he had a World Series run in 2021, World Series run in 2022, a, uh, WBC in 2023. It's a lot of pitching. A lot of pitching. But you know one guy that's been filthy, who because I think because he had a lot of rest, Phil Maton still got a 0.0 ERA right now. Yes. Phil Maton is so far in, in April is the MVP of the Astros bullpen. He has been unhittable. His breaking stuff is just jelly leg and filthy. And he's getting soft contact at a rate that knuckleballers look for. Yeah, he's been great. Um, and I and he's a guy that I constantly have to defend on, you know, some of the, you know, the the fan sites that I go on, you know, they, they want to badmouth him. And, and I think he's been a case where in the past, I think Dusty's misused him. Uh, used him in bad you know situations that aren't good for him. Well, Dusty um, also gets into a bad rhythm of overusing guys. Yeah. He keeps using the same guys. And Maton was like the first. Anytime you got a Jan Maton, first guy out of the pen until he got hurt, and then Dusty had to change things up a little bit. But he was so money in the 2021 playoffs that I think Dusty just felt this is the guy in tough situations. I gotta go to Maton. So one thing I want to remind Astros fans about now, as we were recording this. The Astros are 13-11 as we're recording this. So remember, as you're listening, they've played another game against the race. So either 14-11 or 13-12. But one of the things I want you to remember, fans out there, because I know Tim knows this, we're playing on a balanced schedule this year. Balanced schedule means everybody plays everybody the same amount of times. So... If you're worried about the Rangers running out in front, if you're worried about, you know, the Angels being a little friskier than what you normally would think, just remember, the Astros have played the Blue Jays, they've played the Rays, they've played the Pirates, they've played the Braves. All teams that are either A, winning a lot of games right now, or B, before the season, you know, everybody thought was going to be good. Uh, the Bucks are probably the only team that people didn't think was going to be that good. Uh, they've just signed Brian Reynolds to an eight-year contract. You know, God bless them. I mean, they're they're you know they're feeling frisky. But the thing is, you got to remember the Rangers and the Angels will eventually have to play these teams. So let's see how they do whenever they run up against, like, say, the Rays, who coming into the night were twenty and three. So. The Astros have just handed them one of their four losses on the season. Balanced scheduling is definitely going to make a big difference as we go on. It's going to it's going to both help the Rangers. They don't play the Astros so much, but now they got to play everybody else too. So um, goodbye to the days of beating up on the A's and the Angels, and hello to the days of playing competent baseball like everyone else. And I, I think at the end of the day, this helps the Astros more than than. Hurts everyone else because for the last six years, the Astros have played to the level of their competition. When there's a good team in town or when they're playing a good team, the Astros play well. <laughs> when they play the bottom feeders, the bats don't show up. And, and they turn, uh, and, and this has been a pet peeve of mine for years with the Astros, but they, they turn fifth starters into Cy Young candidates every, every now and then. And it just, it's maddening. But it always seems to happen when you're facing a team that's, Got a team ERA of like 5.5, and then here come the Astros bats getting two hits. So um, it's a long season, and I was talking to one of the kids at the first tee today because he was upset that they lost their game, their Little League game last night. I was like, look, man, you're 
the best the best baseball team of all time lost like 55 or 50 games in a season. You know, that's 50 losses a season, a lot of losses, but they still won 112 games. So you're going to lose some games. It's going to happen. Baseball's a game where you are not going to go undefeated. You're going to win 50. You're going to lose 50. What do you do with the other 62 is what makes you a good team. And so, you know, the Astros are, are going to play some good ball. They had a tough start, but they do that every year. And I'm, I'm confident in this team going forward. But I think I think it's time for Scott and I's absolute favorite segment. Yes. And I know he's already fallen on his own sword a little bit here in, in this episode. You know, the the personal scumbag call, and, and quite frankly, rightfully so, for the Dubon slander that he's put on this podcast. But I, I know he's got some other realistic scumbags he'd like to bring on, too. All right, so... Tim is a team president now. He is a general manager and team president. So he is, you know, basically, you know, he sees, you know, anything marketing that goes around on this soccer team. You know, he's got to okay. He's got a, you know, initial. He's got a co-sign. So I wrote three press releases today. Here is what the Oakland A's have done. The Oakland A's, they sent out a message to their fans. Where was this message written? It was written on an iPhone's notes app. Somebody took a screenshot. Yeah, you get more uh, you get more characters than a regular tweet. iPhones an iPhone's notes app. They released this this uh, I'm not even call it a tweet, a note at eleven thirty PM Oakland time. And what does this note say? Basically saying, screw you, we're going to Vegas. That's basically what they're saying. Now they said it in a lot nicer way. Oh, thank you so much for the memories and you know the overflowing toilets and uh, no, but they uh, the whole thing is the Oakland Coliseum is an absolute joke as a facility. It, it just really is, and they've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to get a new facility going, and California. It, it, Oakland, it just, it's not working there. You know, a lot of, some of it has to do with the state of California. Some of it has to do with local officials. Some of it has to do with uh, the, the giants being across the Bay and kind of, you know, vetoing certain um, parts where they might've built a stadium. This all is all part of it, right? Well, they have purchased land in Vegas and they are ready to build a billion dollar stadium, which will seat 35,000 fans. Now, in the grand scheme of things, I'm happy for the athletics because, you know, they were just in an unattendable situation. Um, they're, they're just, they weren't going to survive playing this way. I mean, they were going to develop talent, and they were going to have to barter that talent off like they have over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. But you could do your fans a little bit better than that. Can't you, team president, Mr. Costello? You know what's bad? When Al Davis's son, Mark Davis, is commenting on how bad you treated the fans of Oakland. Because Mark Davis also took his team to Las Vegas from Oakland. And it's, a, as you said, untenable situation. You know, I just, I've been through the process of trying to find a stadium to play in for our team. It's not easy. But at the end of the day, 
Number one, the Giants really screwed them. The Giants really screwed the Oakland A's because the Giants wouldn't have stayed in San Francisco without the help of the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's helped the Giants stay there. And then the Giants turn around and screwed the Oakland A's the way that they did. It, it, it sucks for the baseball fans of that area because they're not going to become Giants fans, right? Like, that's a rivalry. You don't just go – if it's like, God forbid, if the Astros left Houston, I'm not going to become a Rangers fan. Like, it's not going to happen. And, it, and I'm happy that the A's are going to have a nice new stadium to play in. But realistically, look at the look at the crowd of the Las Vegas Raiders when they play. It's It's all – of the other team's fans because they all get to come to town for Vegas weekend and then go watch their team play. It's a vacation weekend for every team in the NFL. They have no home field advantage and it's just going to happen the same way in baseball. It may not be as bad since there's so many games, but I just, you're you're dropping a, a team with history in a city that doesn't care about that history. So, Maybe you know, I've been around the Skeeters for year one and year two. Yeah, you're going to get some fans because it's new and it's shiny and people are going to want to come check it out. But what happens in year three, year four, year five? What happens when you don't win? Are your fans still going to come out? At least in Houston, you still got fans because they had a history there. It wasn't a lot of fans. You're getting 10,000 a night at, at some point. But people still somewhat paid attention because you had the history of the team in the city. So now what happens when you drop a 100-loss A's team in Vegas? Who's going to care? Here's what's sad. This is absolutely on brand for the athletics, if you look at their yes. history. Yes, yes. And, 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 because they, and, they, and their owner is, is worth more than half the owners. Of, the guy's worth $2.8 billion. Crane is worth like $1.2. So this guy has more money than Crane and spends less. Well, because here's what's funny. They started off as the Philadelphia A's. They were by far the best team at Philadelphia. By far. Connie Mack won at the time. The Phillies, over a 20-year span, because this is in my book, over a 20-year span, they averaged 100 losses a season. Averaged 100 losses a season. The Phillies were terrible. They didn't do anything until 1950 with the Wiz Kids. So... Yet the Athletics were the ones to move. They moved to Kansas City. Kansas City Royals have been, you know, uh, they came in afterwards. Kansas City A's, nothing. They had to move again. They moved to Oakland. If you look at the Giants over the span that they've been there, and if you look at the A's over the span that they've been there, it's no contest. The A's have been more successful as a team. They've won world more World Series championships than the Giants have since they've both been in town. They've been to more World Series than the Giants have. Now, over the last 10 to 15 years, yes, the Giants have been better. The Giants had a great decade, you know, in the last decade, where they won three World Series championships. Kind of fluky, almost all of them. But over the balance of their time in, in the Bay Area, they were the better team. But the Giants... Came out on top. When they were in Philadelphia, they were the better team, but the Phillies come out on top. Kansas City doesn't accept them. They become a de facto minor league team for the Yankees uh, when they get like Roger Maris from the, the A's and, and other star players, which were routinely traded. They end up leaving the Royal Stick, 
So the A's are basically been a T without a city for almost their entire existence. And it's sad, but you're right. You know, I've gone to Vegas a few times, haven't been in about 20 years, but I've always looked for things to do that don't involve gambling. Hell, go to a baseball game. Yeah. I could tell you I'd be a lot more likely to go to another Vegas trip when the Astros are in town. Sure. Why, why wouldn't I want to go pair a weekend in Vegas with an Astros game, a little gambling, nice dinner, see a show, I'm back home. Sure. Because for anybody who, who's ever never been to Vegas, it's one of those places where you can spend about two or three days there and you've had enough. Four of it. max. You, Four max and you're ready you, to go. You've had enough of it. Just the noise and it is, you know, it's exciting when you first get there. And then it just kind of wears off, right? And then you're out of money. Uh, but, you know, I've played rounds of golf there. I've, like, rented some golf clubs. There's some nice golf courses around there. Because we were desperate for stuff to do that didn't involve gambling. Because gambling, at the end of the day, uh, especially in Vegas, it gets to be pretty expensive. You know, if you're losing $100 an hour, shoot, I could find, I could play golf for 100 bucks. That's going to take me four hours. That's cheaper entertainment. Or, you know, hey, if I go to an NFL game for three or three and a half hours, even if it costs me 100 bucks to buy a ticket, that's cheaper entertainment than gambling. So I think it'll work from a making money standpoint. But like you said, how many of their fans are going to be in the stands? I mean, that's the question. And then on top of it, you know, Vegas is a pretty big transplant city. A lot of people move out to Vegas to work in the industry. So, again, you're going to have a lot of people who already have a team. They're excited when their team comes to town. They're going to be like me when, when the Rangers host the Astros. I go in orange. I'm not going to a Rangers game any other time than when the Astros come to town and I wear my Astros stuff because I'm going to an Astros game. And it's going to be the same way in Vegas. You know, wherever you're from, when your team comes to town, you ask your casino floor manager, hey, you got tickets to the game tonight? Dope. Thank you. And you go. But I think that's a great pick, Scott, because when Mark Davis thinks you did it wrong, clearly you did it wrong. Um, I'm going to go to the world of college football. And one of the big hires this offseason was Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, coming to University of Colorado to take over that program. This is after, of course, he made such a huge deal about how comfortable he was in the um, in, in the world at Jackson State, and how much he loved being a part of the the black colleges and, and, and helping build those up, and um, that you know being a part of that HBCU culture. Doesn't matter. Leads for the big money to Colorado. He says it's about the conditions of the facilities, all the other stuff. Take it at whatever you will. Gets to Colorado and basically tells everybody, hey, you better transfer out of here. Most of you are not going to be on this team. You're not good enough. Get out. Then after he does that, he refuses to release any of the footage from that year's practices before he was the coach that would help those players in the transfer pool. So tell me, Scott, you tell all these players to get out. And and you've been a coach. You, you the same way you posed the question to me as a guy who ran a, who runs a front office. If you know a guy's not going to make it on your team, you at least try to help him get on somewhere else. 
you want to help them find an opportunity to play. And, and for Coach Prime, who for some reason everybody loves, talks about how motivating he is, how great he is for the kids, he's got 20 kids that he's holding hostage who he won't help go get a scholarship or a chance to play at a lesser university because he's holding on to their tape. And, and, and that's bullshit, and it's a scumbag move. Well, I'll tell you, um, I knew I knew he was not long for Jackson State. He came in second for the TCU job. And I know I had a lot, have a lot of friends who were very upset at the time that he wasn't the guy because they saw Sonny Dykes as kind of like a, just a mediocre, you know, air raid kind of, you know, he'll be okay, but he won't be that good. Of course, what does he do in his first year at TCU? He takes us to the national championship game. Uh, yeah, absolutely the, you know, the best season, you know, ever until we met Georgia. And that was, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. There's, I'm still having nightmares, but um, yeah. He wasn't going to stay at Jackson State. There's no way. And this is still the problem with college athletics, right? And it, it, the transfer portal has made it better, but it hasn't made it great because coaches, and, and this is the thing, and, and athletes and athletes shouldn't do this, but they do. They'll sit there and say, I'm committing to this school because of this coach. Coach could leave the next year. They're fucked. They're absolutely fucked. So it's not fair. Um, and it, it, I don't know that it ever will be fair. I think the transfer portal made it a little bit better. But I, I don't get it. If you're going to kick somebody out of your program, if you're going to sit there and say you're not good enough, you got to do right by the kid. You have to. I mean, you, you may not have recruited them, but somebody did. The last coach thought he was good enough. So you either sit there and say, you have a spot on my team, or I'm going to help you get another spot somewhere. That you, you, that's your, Those are your only two options. Because he's a parent, right? Like that's His son is the quarterback of that team. At the end of the day, as a parent, you have to recognize that these are children, right? They're still young men, but they're kids. And you want to help those kids get an opportunity, whether it's with you or not. And that's what's heartbreaking to me is as as a parent myself, I can't imagine a world where I wouldn't want to help a kid. You know, I, I volunteer with kids. I, I work with kids and I want them to, to, to have the best opportunity. And I can tell you right now, if a situation comes up on my team where I've got to, you know, I, I get a chance to bring in a player and I got to cut somebody, I'm making calls. Hey, this guy's great in practice. This guy's great in the locker room. I've, I've do you have a spot available for a good player? I've got a guy for you. Here's the thing. Oh. Yeah, and here's the thing. My 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 sister played four years of college volleyball. And so she played, you know, she's older than I am, so she played back in the uh you know the late eighties, early nineties. So back in those days, if you wanted to transfer schools, the rule was you had to transfer out of conference or you would have to sit out a year you lost a year of eligibility. So my sister started at Ulala, which is, well, and now I call it University of uh, Louisiana at Lafayette. I call it Ulala. They were USL back in those days. Um, I won't get into why she left completely, except to say that her coach was an absolute scumbag. 
an absolute scumbag. And so it, it, she had to leave. So she goes to North Texas, and luckily North Texas is not in the same conference, and she's able, you know, to finish out her career. But, you know, that was what things were like back in the days. You know, my coach, I could sit there and say, yeah, I'm staying forever, and then tomorrow, oh, nope, I'm leaving for Alabama. Or, oh, I'm staying forever, no, tomorrow I'm going to go to LSU. That's the way college athletics has always been. And I, I don't think we should hold Prime to a different standard. You know, yeah, we could say he was a scumbag for leaving Jackson State, but that's just what anybody else does. I mean, it's it's what. No, I, I don't care about the leaving of Jackson State. You're right. That that's what everybody else does. It's the but the, holding kids holding kids ransom. But the whole thing is, is like this. You know, ninety nine percent of college athletes are never going to play a down a play a minute of professional whatever they're in. That's just the way it is. And so it's something, and, and that's and what I've never understood, and this is, I'm going to talk to parents out here because um, I've been in the junior volleyball, you know, track, and I've, you know, my daughter's played for, you know, she played for several years, and I got parents who are going to pay three, four thousand dollars to send their kids to play, you know, junior volleyball or whatever other sport, insert sport here, soccer, softball, whatever, right? Because they think, I'm going to get an athletic scholarship out of this. Well, maybe you will. But you know what? That $3,000 a year for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, that's that stuff adds up. I mean, I could almost pay for a year of college. And so, and it's funny, my, my daughter quit playing uh, junior volleyball this year. We were able to afford our Disney trip. Because that was almost the amount of money we were spending on junior volleyball. So it's like, gee, would you rather sit the bench on your junior volleyball team? Or would you rather go to Disney World? Huh. I don't know. What do you think? But the whole idea of getting a college scholarship, these athletes, and if anybody wants to trash a student athlete, I want you to try to just work a week into the, in their schedule. Give that a shot. You know, they're playing. I mean, they're practicing. They're playing 20 and 30 hours a week on top of their academic level. Now, think about, you know, how much we had, to, you know, if we were taking a standard 15 hours, so you're in the classroom 15 hours, how much are you spending on a week's, weekly basis doing, you know, whatever you need to do to make sure that you're going to do good in that class? And then let's add 20 or 30 hours on top of that of practice, weight training, whatever else. You're going to do that. See how well you do. And then to sit there and say that most of these kids before NIL couldn't work a job. So a lot of these kids don't have any money. So how how do you even make that work? Yet here's a college coach who, you know, Deion Sanders, I guarantee you, he's he's probably making more money than any state employee in the state of Colorado. And he's probably getting money for a radio show. Or is he getting money to do this camp? And he's doing money, you know, so 
forget about his salary that he's getting from the University of Colorado. That's just the beginning. I mean, he's still doing his Aflac commercials. He's still doing all this, that, and the other. It's absolutely nuts. I guarantee you he's the highest paid state employee because the commissioner of education, Robert Hammond, was listed beforehand at $239,000 as the highest paid employee. So, <laughs> guarantee that. I mean, I guess the only question is, is you know, uh, is some you know, are you paying somebody at Colorado State more money? I don't think so. Uh, you know, Naval, you know, Colorado Naval Academy, uh, you know, or any other you know BS college I could make up. But there's no way they're making more than Coach Prime. Yeah. So he's making all this money hand over fist, and here's this athlete who I guarantee you, Colorado sucks. They did last year. Their program sucks. So do you think that you know any big company is going to come forward is going to give any of those kids NIL money? Maybe his. I kid. mean, some. I guarantee they'll be good next year, Coach. I, I, oh. I they will be good next year. So oh. those guys will get NIL money, but not the ones who are already there. Well, so the ones that weren't already there, they were working that thirty-hour-a-week job. You know, doing all the weight training, doing all the for practice. free. For well, for I guess an education. For less, for less than some of the other people in the Pac-12, we'll say that for right. less NIL money, they probably had some local stuff, like the same way, you know, the Houston Star Pizza and stuff like that sponsors them. But that's not like what Neutrogena just gave uh, Caleb Williams, which is like four hundred grand a year. Or four, no, it's four point five million dollars a year. Yeah, and that's and and the thing with NIL is, is that for every Caleb Williams, there's ninety nine guys not earning shit. And, that, and, and that's and that's the that's the problem with NIL, uh, and and I think NIL ultimately will be a good thing for college athletics, uh, as, as soon as they kind of figure out an equilibrium there. But the whole thing is that them being able to play. This is the last football these guys will ever play over the next few years. Give them a chance. Give them a chance yeah. to land somewhere. It's going to be, the, you know, the last time somebody told us, you know, back in the day, it'll be the last time you could do this for free. Because after this, you'll have to pay money, you know, to play, you know, ear murals or, you know, or whatever else. Um, and, and that's what our coaches always told us, you know, it's the last time you'll play for free. So it's the last time these guys will get to play and give them a chance to find something. You know, even if you sat there and told them you can't, you can't go anywhere in the Pac-12. Okay. You know, they could find somewhere else, but you got to let them go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a bad look. It's a bad look for the program. It's a bad look for the coach. It's a bad look for the athletic director. For everybody, they've got to do better. Um, you know, those those students came in and, and wore your jersey with pride, and they gave you everything they had. And, and it should go both ways. So I think that's about all we've got on that one, though, as we look to wrap this show up. It's been it's been a fun one. I think, you know, next week, Scott and I pretty much have a full-on Texans draft analysis planned. We'll have all seven rounds of picks coming at you. What do we like? What do we not like? Um, do we have our new quarterback? Do Are we are we over the moon? Are we scared? All All, all coming. You know, we have no idea what to expect, I think. Um, this is the most up in the air draft the Texans have ever had. So, um, we'll see. And we'll look forward to bringing it to you next week on Thursday as we break down the Houston Texans draft.
So, um, just want to give a shout out. Remember, thank you for all of our listeners. Um, thank you for joining the, the Snaphook family. Uh, please like our Facebook page and, and don't be a stranger. Come in, you know, send us, shoot us a message. Shoot us a message on Twitter. I know I'm at S Barzilla. Uh, Tim uh, has his own Twitter, you know, Twitter follow a handle, which he'll, he'll give you here in a minute. But please shoot us a message. You know, give us an idea. You know, where do you want to see? You know, do you have any guests you want to see on this show? Do you have any sports topics or political topics that you want to see us tackle? You know, give us an idea. If you if you have, if you think we're scumbags, if you think we need belong in the stocks, as we talked on in an earlier episode, you know, tell us that too. Uh, we can learn from. You know, obviously, I've learned from my uh, Mauricio Dubon slander. Uh, hopefully I can learn from something else if you give us a ring. Learn something new every day, Scott. That's the that's the point of living life, as my grandpa used to say. But uh, you're right. You can find me at, at Tim underscore Costello 10. And as Scott said, please be sure to like and interact with us there on that Facebook page. But that's all we've got for you here today. Be sure to tune in next week. I've got um, some pretty cool ideas for our political show that I'll roll out with Scott. And then, of course, we'll be breaking down those Texans draft picks. But again, we appreciate everybody who has welcomed us into their ears, their hearts, their minds as the snap hook continues to grow. We look forward to seeing you next time on the snap hook. Thank you for tuning in to the snap hook and making Scott and I a part of your week wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snap Hook.